Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we want to talk about the Iran nuclear deal. Are there hopes to break the stalemate? Is it going to be possible to restore full compliance with the deal? Can we stop escalation? I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast to help us make sense of this. First up, we have Ellie Garin-Meyer, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and deputy head of our Middle East and North Africa program. We also have Hossein Musavian, a former Iranian diplomat and now the Middle East security and nuclear policy specialist at Princeton University. Also joining us from the US, we have Vali Nasser, who is Professor of International Affairs and Middle Eastern Studies at Johns Hopkins University at SAIS, but he's also a former uh, advisor to the US government um, in previous life. And finally, we have Ali Baez, who's the Project Director on Iran at the International Crisis Group. Thank you very much to all of you for joining. Talks in Vienna in March this year, negotiators seem to be making substantial progress towards bringing Iran and the US back into compliance with the agreement. And then just on the verge of a breakthrough, the deal started to unravel, um, something which uh, has become quite uh, worrying for many people across the Middle East and and in the wider world. Um, Maybe we can go to you, Vali, first, just to tell us where we're at at the moment and, and what you think could happen uh, if and when the, the deal collapses. Um, thank you very much, Mark. It's great to be here. Uh, as you know, uh, Iran and the U.S. had uh, indirect negotiations in Doha over two days uh, on the 27th and 28th of June, facilitated by the European Union. The idea of these negotiations was that uh, since the negotiations have been stalled in Vienna since March, and the European Union was taking messages back and forth between uh, two continents in Tehran and Washington, and they were pretty, uh, it was a pretty ineffective way of conducting these negotiations. It was very slow. Sometimes it would take uh, weeks for one side to respond to other side's proposals. Uh, So the idea was to put them uh, in the same city and that the EU would basically go back and forth between two different hotels and not two different continents to see if they can figure out uh, a way forward over remaining obstacles. But when I spoke to uh, a senior U.S. official uh, when he was in Doha, he told me that this was a complete waste of time. And basically, the Iranians came to the negotiating table with completely unrealistic uh, demands. Uh, that they should have known would not work because some of these issues have been on the table for a very long period of time, Uh, like the issue of guarantees, for instance, of this administration, the Biden administration, providing assurances uh, that uh, European investments in Iran would be safe and secure, even if the next U.S. president decides to withdraw from the agreement. Uh, But the main issue here is that Iran and U.S. have not been able to overcome their differences over uh, U.S. Uh, keeping the Revolutionary Guards on its list of foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, and the idea was to try to find an alternative sanctions relief. Uh, and in the past four months, they have not been able to get the price right. And unfortunately, Doha did not unlock uh, this process. 
uh, and from the tone and approach of the Iranians, it's very difficult to be optimistic uh, that these obstacles could be uh, surmounted in the coming weeks. So, Ellie, I know you've been gathering a lot of people, both from around Europe, but also from Iran in recent days and talking to lots of people about ways forward. How do you see the situation? Well, I mean, as, as one person described it to me, similar to what Ali has said, after Borrell's visit to Tehran, in June, the Europeans had hoped that this meeting in Doha would help finalize a number of outstanding issues. They wanted to close certain files, but it seems that the Iranians have uh, reopened files that the Europeans and the Americans thought were actually closed. So this is certainly not a um, helpful move by the Iranian side. But what I think will be very, very important and, and interesting to watch is what happens in the week or two following Doha, because some very strong messages were delivered uh, in Doha to Iran about what where its expectations could go and what is realistic and not. And they're going to be taking these back to um, their interlocutors uh, and decision makers in Tehran. And what's going to be important is what message the EU and Boral's team receives next from the Iranian side. If they... Decision makers in Tehran do want a deal and want to go forward with the Biden administration on this front. Things can move quite quickly. Uh, but if we are in a situation where the Iranians are actually trying to buy time through negotiating and keeping the deal in limbo phase, I think that the Europeans, particularly the E3, are going to start losing patience and we're going to see political pressure in particular building up. And we saw signals of that. Uh, at the UN Security Council, again in June, um, looking at the implementation of the nuclear deal, where it was clear that you know Germany, France, and the United Kingdom are fast losing patience with Iran and are likely to move towards a more, let's say, coercive pressure mode if these talks with the US really continue to stall over the summer. So, Bali, you're sitting in Washington at the moment. That's obviously been one of the places where there's been a huge amount of back and forth, particularly on this question about whether the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, continue to be designated as, as a terrorist organization. But how, how, do, how do you see things from there? I mean, I, I don't think it's, it, it's, it's at all likely that the Biden administration would lift that designation. Uh, and I think Iran has been told that in multiple ways. Uh, um, not only is the political cost of doing so quite heavy for the president, and the closer we get to the midterm elections, I, I think he's less likely to, to try to spend too much political capital on, on the nuclear deal. But also, in effect, even lifting the designation does not really make a material difference to what uh, set of sanctions would be, would be lifted or not. So, so the perception is that this is a red herring issue that, that Iran is, is, is raising in order to drag its feet. And then alternately, uh, it signals that, that the Iranian political establishment is not, is not of one mind on the nuclear deal. In other words, the, the guards want the FTO designation lifted. There might be other parts of the Iranian government that is willing to, um, as, as Ali mentioned, get other sorts of compensation to move forward. And it's never a good thing if you're, if you're having a negotiation with a government that is not, uh, that has internal divisions over, over a set of issues. It's not, it's not a formula for, for arriving at an agreement and then arriving at an agreement that actually would stick. 
So I think the president's made a decision in the U.S. that, that either Iran signs without the FTO uh, designation being lifted or that's not going to happen. So, Hussein, you spent many years negotiating about nuclear issues. One of the consequences of the, the stalling of the situation is, is that both sides are coming further and further out of their compliance with the deal. Um, and the most kind of shocking moment was when they literally took cameras out of a lot of the facilities, which means that the first time that the IAEA is not able to, to provide assurance to the rest of the world about the nature of, of the Iranian nuclear program. How do you see that dynamic developing? I try to uh, explain the Iranian point of view. When Bagheri started negotiation in November uh, 2021, one issue was guarantee, whether the U.S. would be able to give a guarantee that we would not withdraw again from the nuclear deal. One was Iranian demand on verification of lifting sanctions. One was lifting all sanctions imposed during Trump. These were three major issues on the table. Ultimately, when the European politician just some days ago said uh, the agreement was finalized in March 2022, it was really a situation that Iranian side showed flexibility on the verification issue. Two-thirds of Trump sanctions, the, uh, the American side was able to accept about two, lifting two-thirds of American uh, 1,500 sanctions imposed during President Trump. One-third was left. And the U.S. was not able to give guarantee for uh, uh, withdrawal, uh, withdrawing again. <clears throat> Iranian side understood that they are practically, I mean, they believe they gave enough concession on verification. They gave enough uh, uh, concession on lifting uh, the, the all sanctions 1500, but they wanted guarantee. When the U.S. side said we don't we cannot give you any guarantee. Then Iranians, they wanted something in return, which was delisting uh, IRGC from FTO. That's why I think we had two, three months pause on negotiations because Iranian side, they understood Biden is not able to give any guarantee that the next U.S. administration would not depart from the JCPOA, but Iranian side uh, was expecting Biden administration, first of all, to delist uh, IRGC from FTO. Second, at least to lift the sanctions Biden himself has imposed during his own administration beyond uh, Trump sanctions. Nevertheless, when the negotiations started in Doha, while the U.S. was not able to delist IRGC and Iranian side expected some more sanctions, a little bit at least from Trump sanctions, one third is remaining, sanctions during Obama, uh, uh, during Biden imposed to be lifted and somehow at least a type of guarantee that during President Biden, the U.S. would not uh, withdraw or violate the JCPOA. I think the American side was not able to give more concession on lifting sanctions they were not able to give any guarantee that even during Biden, because if we have the election in November, it's likely that Republicans, they would win. Then we would have more sanctions from Congress. If the deal is revived, then what's going to happen 
just after November election or after January. That's why Iranians, they feel uh, that agreement under such a condition would be uh, very vulnerable and they are looking for some type of sustainability for the deal, at least during Biden administration. So this is one of the big dilemmas of where we're at at the moment. We have a deal which was enormously difficult to get, but as a result of what's happened, it's become pretty devalued on both sides. From an American and Western side, the guarantees are going to run out pretty quickly um, because it's time limited. And from an, from an Iranian side, it's very obvious that um, it's impossible to bind the next president in. I mean, we've already been through one very depressing cycle. Of- it, is, it is not only about the next president. Biden proved that even during his own administration, he imposed many, many sanctions from January 2020 to the, currently even last two, three weeks we had sanctions. It seems even if uh, JCPOA is revived, Biden would continue to impose more sanctions under the umbrella of terrorism and human rights, and the Congress would jump in to push uh, for much more broader sanctions on that's why even Iranians are not sure whether JCPOA would be implemented correctly during Biden administration. So is it worth the effort then, given everything that, that everyone's said so far? I mean, what are the benefits of reviving this deal if it's going to run out soon anyway and, and Iran's unlikely to get much sanction relief? Or is the danger that if, if this disappears, you could end up in a much worse place with a war in the Middle East? I mean, I think, you know, if you look at it from Tehran's perspective, I totally understand why they see this as less for more, because they do believe as a result of the Trump experience and lack of guarantees and assurances that even if the deal is restored, they're going to probably reap less benefits from the agreement than was the case in 2016, because at best they would get their uh, oil exports uh, back on the market and access to their frozen assets, but trade is not going to be normalized. So this is less than the economic dividends promised in the JCPOA. But the expectation is that they will come back into compliance with 100% of their nuclear commitments. But when you look at it from Washington or from European capitals perspective, it's kind of the same thing. It's uh, basically less uh, for more as well, uh, in the sense that uh, they're getting less of the non-proliferation benefits. Uh, the key metric in the JCPOA, which is the breakout time, which is the amount of time that it takes to enrich enough fissile material for a single nuclear weapon, that the JCPOA ex- extended to one year. Now we know if the deal is restored because of irreversible knowledge gain that Iran has had, at best would be about six months. Whereas the Biden administration will go beyond uh, the sanctions relief that the Obama administration provided, uh, which was about 750 designations. As Hussein said, it would be more. It would be about 1,100 sanctions that will be lifted. So they're providing more sanctions relief for less non-proliferation benefits as well. So both sides in kind of a mirror image see the deal as less valuable. And that's why the Iranians have demands that go beyond the JCPOA. And the Biden administration from the get-go wanted to get a longer and stronger nuclear deal. The question right now that I think decision makers in both capitals should, should ask themselves is what's the alternative? You know, when when uh, U.S. Envoy Rob Malley had a hearing in the Senate, one of the senators said, if you're starving and you're hungry, are you going to reject three-fourths of a burger uh, because it's not a full burger? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make logical sense. Um, and, uh, you know, in this case, too, 
yes, Iran will not get maybe full the full benefits of the JCPOA, but what's the alternative? Living under sanctions for the foreseeable future and for the West too. Um, you know, what Iran is already closer to the verge of nuclear weapons that has ever been the case in the past two decades. This is the first time Iran can have an undetected breakout since the beginning of the nuclear crisis with Iran in 2003. Uh, where will Iran be in six months in terms of its nuclear advancement? So I think we should compare what's on the offer right now, a ready-to-sign deal in Vienna, a 27-page detailed agreement, compared to the alternatives. And also, I think for both sides, it's important to, to think about benefits that are outside of the parameters of non-proliferation and the deal. So, uh, you know, if, if Iran, uh, if there is no deal and Iran reaches a breakout point that, as uh, uh, Rob Malley told the U.S. Senate, it could happen without the United States even knowing it. You have a situation in which Israel is determined to undo this program and is aggressively attacking inside Iran with sabotage and assassination. Iran may well begin to react in some manner. I mean, whatever degree of strategic patience there might have been because of the nuclear deal conversations will go away. And then the United States has to contemplate the possibility of a conflict that it doesn't want and it cannot afford in the region. On the other hand, I think Iran is also in a situation where it wants to build relations with its Arab neighbors. It needs them for trade and diplomacy. That trade and diplomacy is not going to go forward if the talks collapse and more sanctions come along and the environment changes. Uh, there, there is now a great deal of a push by the United States and Israel to transform the Abraham Accords into some kind of a Middle Eastern version of NATO, with Israel basically being the main force to stand up to Iran, that doesn't benefit Iran uh, uh, either. Yes, it's not a, a, a nobody likes this deal, but it, but the reality is that they, I think at least they should, they cannot necessarily afford what it will do to the Middle East. I mean, it's not about the nuclear issue alone. And how credible is this idea of there actually being a conflict, given you know how reluctant the U.S. has been? to get engaged in Ukraine. I mean, it's obviously spending a lot of money arming Ukraine and, and is very active in diplomatic terms, but that was a clear red line for Biden not to get sucked into that. And the idea of getting sucked into another Middle Eastern war is obviously deeply unattractive. The Biden administration is desperate to, to be able to shift attention to the Indo-Pacific. Presumably, the Israeli government also not desperate to, to get involved in a in a war with Iran. There's lots of skepticism about how much damage you can do anyway with bombing campaign against uh, against different facilities. Do you think that really is a, a, a risk? If you had to put a percentage terms on it, how great a percentage terms would you put on that happening? I personally think it's getting higher and higher and it's going to be higher yet if the talks formally collapse. Look, if you went back months from now, nobody in the West assumed that we would have a war in Ukraine. Now everybody sees, oh, you know, all the, all the signs were there. We're, we're getting into, into a situation where even if none of the sides want to have a war in the Middle East, they are sleepwalking into it. And that's what, that's what worries me. Do you agree with that, Ali? Oh, 100%. I mean, look, again, as I said, this is uh, status quo is not tenable uh, over the long, ter long term. Uh, and by long term, I even mean six months from now. If breakout time is already under under week, imagine where it's going to be as we get closer to November. And President Biden, I think, in a matter of six months, will be presented with a situation that he uh, will either have to own Iran's nuclear weapon, uh, Iran becoming a virtual nuclear weapon state under his watch, 
uh, or he would have to take military action to set back Iran's nuclear program. Israel is currently not being as alarmist as it was in the past. I mean, compare right now to 10 years ago when Bibi Netanyahu drew that red line at, uh, at the UN on a cartoon bomb. Uh, Iran's nuclear program at the time had a breakout time of four months. Um, and the reason I think Israel is not alarmist right now is because um, it knows if it says that the sky is falling, the quickest solution to that dilemma would be the restoration of the JCPOA. And it doesn't want that. Uh, but once the talks collapse, I think they will change tune. Uh, and, uh, you know, they would try to push the United States to take military action, even if the U.S. is reluctant to do so. Look, so many of us have been in these scenario planning exercises where we have repeatedly hit a wall on a um let's say, least worst viable plan B for Europe and US to pursue if the JCPOA collapses. And we keep coming back to the conclusion that the JCPOA is still, despite the fact that many of its assets have been reduced for both sides, remains the best viable path forward. And this is why, you know, in an opinion piece that our board members, Javier Solana and Carl Belt wrote a few months ago, what is needed now is essentially the leadership in both Tehran and Washington to make a final call on whether they want the deal that was agreed in Vienna to go to the finishing line or not. I think the the, the real dilemma right now uh, in Washington is that President Biden seems to be in an incre- increasingly weak spot domestically where he doesn't want to accept a political risk that's associated with uh, going against the grain of some of the hawkish Democrats in his party and giving Iran, let's say, sweeteners to the deal agreed in Vienna to get Iran to accept that there really can't be a guarantee that a future US president will stick to the agreement, but that there could be potential huge economic rewards, at least in the two-year period that Biden is in there. And that's some of the ideas that the Europeans have been working on, including in Doha. And the problem now in Tehran is because there is such a um, you know sensitive internal process for coming to a decision, no one really wants to be the person that sticks their neck out in full support of a deal. You know, we no longer have a President Rouhani in office that's uh, really w- willing to push other sides of the system to to accept a, a deal with the United States. They, you know, Iran's Supreme Leader feels that he's already been cheated once out of the deal, once Trump left the deal, and it's going to take quite a significant political move, I think, from the United States to get Iran to get this deal to the finishing line. And that's why that FTO move was one of the ideas that was being floated to to give Iran that little incentive sweetener. Now, what's needed is to think of other ideas outside of this FTO designation box that could be enough for Iran to accept that this deal will not have guarantees, but that the two-year potential lifeline on it is still worthwhile. So, Hussein, I'd like to bring you in now. One thing which would be great, maybe before you say what it was that you wanted to say, is to tell us a bit more from an Iranian perspective, both how credible some of these negative scenarios are of, a, of an anti-Iranian NATO being set up on the basis of the Abraham Accords or some sort of Israeli or American military strike on, on the kind of negative side. And on the positive side, how much extra money could be made if, you know, through oil sales and other things at this time when prices are, are, are sky high, if there was some sort of sanctions relief, which came out of uh, a return into force of the JCPOA? I think Israeli, uh, Saudis and Emiratis and Bahrainis alliance with the U.S. against Iran was created during Trump administration. 
And now it's going to be formalized or officialized. This is another issue. Nevertheless, the alliance, the confrontation uh, between Saudi, Bahrain, Emiratis, and Americans, it's, it's, it's a reality for years, at least uh, from President Trump administration. Iranians, uh, they really do not believe an Israeli-Arab NATO against Iran would be successful and they would not they believe they would not be able to manage something like this nevertheless um, of course if there is um, a deal for a short term uh, Iran would have economic benefit from more selling more oil no 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 doubt Iranian assets would be returned to Iran but the question is what after five six months in the absence of no deal what's going to happen it is, it is um, most likely that the IAEA in, in September meeting or in December meeting, they would uh, issue a resolution referring the Iranian file to United Nations Security Council. To my understanding, if there is such a resolution, Iranians, they would suspend implementation of JCPOA totally. And then if uh, uh, the United Nations Security Council uh, would reimpose uh, the six resolutions which was adopted during Ahmadinejad against Iran, then it is possible that Iranians, uh, they would suspend implementation of NPT. Then if there is a war, a U.S. attack or Israeli attack, then this would give Iranians enough reason to divert toward weaponization. Therefore, I think from the day one, it was clear that Europeans, Americans are going to have JCPOA as a deal for a non-Iran as a non-nuclear weapon state. If this is going to happen, therefore they should implement JCPOA. If the U.S. cannot give any guarantee for the future, can the P4 plus one give guarantee? Imagine the U.S. would violate after a U.S. congressional election or the next U.S. president would withdraw. We would have P4 plus one. Would they implement the JCPOA or not? If neither Europe nor Russia nor China nor uh, are going to give any guarantee to the Iranians in case of the second cheating by the Americans, then, then what Iranians they should do? I mean... That this is really the big issue in Tehran. Can I just say, uh, uh, Mark, that uh, I think uh, if the Iranian leadership should also think about uh, the opportunity cost here. Uh, Iran is losing about $5 billion a month of potential additional oil exports if it could get back to the market. In the past four months that uh, we've had a stalemate in the negotiations, that has cost the Iranian economy $20 billion. There is no guarantee that the U.S. would have been able to provide or no economic incentive four months ago that would be as much uh, valuable to the Iranians uh, as the oil revenue that they have lost. And the longer term solution, if they're really seeking a more sustainable agreement, is really not in the JCPOA, but in a successor agreement that basically is, uh, amounts to a better for better kind of arrangement uh, for both sides. I think if they continue to try to extract from the JCPOA what it doesn't even have in its nature. Remember, it's not even called an agreement. It's called a joint plan of action, simply because it's a political understanding, not a, a, a treaty. 
I think it would just result in additional waste of time uh, at best, and at worst, it creates the kind of lose-lose dynamic that we witnessed during the Ahmadinejad era. So we're coming to the end of our time here, um, and this is not a question which any of you are going to like, but if you each had to put all of your money on a deal or no deal, um, what would you say? Deal or no deal is the most likely scenario. Well, I, I mean, uh, if, if you want a black and white answer, I would say, unfortunately, no deal. Uh, but I would put the odds of a deal at 25% now. Okay. Ellie? I'm an eternal optimist, so I'm going to go all in with the deal. What about you, Vali? Uh, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm as more, more optimistic than Ali. I, I think the economic pressure on uh, inside Iran is also a significant factor. We didn't talk about it, but but it, it, it is something that brought Iran to Doha and might, might get them to a deal as well. Okay. And Hussein? I, I think still there is a 50-50 chance. Okay. All right. So you're refusing to... to, to... <laughs> I was the only one that played ball, I'm afraid, Mark. <laughs> okay. Well, you'll be rewarded in another life, Ellie. But um, we've got one thing left. It's been a great discussion. We'll obviously come back um, when things are clearer and um, hopefully there will be some some moves in the next few weeks. Um, but um, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf uh, segment. What's on your bookshelf, Ellie? Um, on my bookshelf, actually, I was going to um, self-publicize one of our latest papers at ECFR from the MENA program. It's called the Iron Net, Digital Replation in the Middle East and North Africa, just to expand your horizons beyond the JCPOA. It's a great new uh, piece that we have from our visiting fellow, James Lynch, uh, which is an interesting read. Okay. Um, Valley, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, uh, given how depressing uh, the the Middle East issues are, I try to escape to other topics. Uh, The the book I recently read and really enjoyed is called Born in Blackness. It's about uh, how Africa contributed to modernity and and the legacy of uh, of slavery. By Howard French. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. By Howard French, exactly. And Ali? Well, I would highly recommend a a book by a common friend of ours, uh, Martin Endig, called Master of the Game. It's about Kissinger's uh, diplomacy uh, in the Middle East in the 1970s. And if I just may read a quick quote from it, uh, Henry Kissinger told King Hussein in December of 1973, I'm using this because it's so relevant to the discussion we just had. Uh, He said, the art of politics is to make a concession before you're forced to, to do today what would be less than what you will have to do tomorrow. Uh, And I think Iranians and Americans would really, uh, if they heed that advice, we would be much better off with the JCPOA. Great. What about you, Hussein? I recommend a recent book written by Hussein uh, Banai, John Tierman, and Malcolm Baer. It is about uh, the different national narratives of Iranians and Americans. The reason this book is useful because the nuclear deal is practically a conflict between Iran and the U.S. And while the two nations, they have different interests, grievances about each other, but they often deadly confrontation uh, drives from the very different national uh, narratives that shape their politics, their action, their vision, and their uh, own uh, strategies. That's great. What's it called? The, the name is uh, Republics of Myth, National Narratives, and the U.S.-Iran Conflict. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful talking to all of you today. If people have enjoyed listening to it, 
We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you uh, want to let other people know uh, how great this podcast is, feel free to uh, leave us a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to download it on. And while you're there, please take out a subscription so you can listen to future episodes. But for now, from Vali Nasser, Hossein Masavian, Ali Baez, Ellie Garin-Meyer, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and this week's episode is edited by Adam Typhoon. Thank you very much. Thank you.